I've had clients that don't hire a birth doula and hire a birth photographer. I'm like, what the fuck? Like what kind of great, like seriously. And I don't believe everyone needs a doula either. I'm just saying if you're in the position where you're hiring people and your hiring process is, should I have someone documenting this or should I have someone supporting me? I just, I don't even know what to say about that culture that we're in. You think that the presentation of what happens is as important or more important than actually being there yourself. And furthermore, the idea that someone could be postpartum and then posting on Instagram, like three days postpartum about the postpartum experience before they've even been through it or lived it, to me is just completely, it's insanity. I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Rixa Fries et c'est le podcast du Gidecolo. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. We're well into February now. If you celebrated Valentine's Day, which I did in a really beautiful way, Happy Valentine's Day. It is the 15th of February, and uh, my guest today is Kimberly Ann Johnson, who's very well known in my circles, but this is the first time that we've recorded an interview together. If you don't know Kimberly, the title of this episode should tell you quite a bit on grieving the loss of sanctity in birth. Kimberly has written extensively. She has an amazing podcast. I think she's had a couple of podcasts over the years, but her current podcast is called Sex Birth Trauma. And she's the author of multiple books, including one book that we're going to talk a little bit about on the show today called The Reckoning, which is co-authored with another former guest of the Holistic OBGYN podcast and somebody that I admire greatly, Stephen Jenkinson, who is the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School. Um, you can, you should totally go back and listen to his episode because it's very complimentary to Kimberly Ann Johnson's work, which makes sense that they would write an incredible book. Kimberly and I really have bonded over the role of hospital interventions, even in natural, unmedicated, unassisted, undisturbed childbirth in the hospital. If you enjoyed my interview with, um, well, I guess you actually haven't heard this one. There's another interview coming up with Tracy Vogel, who's an OB anesthesiologist, but she was on my old podcast. And really a variety of the guests that I've had, including Greg Schmaus, including Wapio, including Emily Green, Lindsay Milas, there are quite a number of episodes in which we've actually gone deep on birth trauma. But Kimberly Ann Johnson also works on the physical. She actually works through some of the spasmatics, the tightness, the storage centers for trauma in the body. She actually helps to physically manipulate the tissue and work that out for women who are increasingly seeking out people like Kimberly. So I thought it was very, very appropriate to bring her on the show. I think that Kimberly is doing some very unique work. She's always kind of in the oven. And to steal a phrase from one of my mentors when I was in palliative care training, 
what we do in hospice and palliative care around end of life is that we walk into the oven knowing it's going to be very hot. We don't shy away from these hard conversations. We don't shy away from these somewhat controversial topics because it is so important to women, especially the women who are listening to my podcast. So Kimberly has no fear around juicy, important, and somewhat challenging topics to cover. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, but I should read, should read some sponsors ads real quickly. We've got some great sponsors on the show. You know, a lot of podcasts have, they'll take anybody who's got a deep pocketbook as sponsors. I am very, very selective with the groups that I work with. And so let me give you a really brief overview of the types of companies that make this show possible. BirthFit is a pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle training program. You're going to be hearing from Lindsay Matthews Cantu, who is the founder of BirthFit. She is a rock star chiropractor, strength and conditioning coach, and she brings that spirit into BirthFit where you're going to get nervous system supported general strength and conditioning. You're going to learn some basic human movement foundations. You're going to get the basics on core and pelvic floor function. This is a comprehensive prenatal training program. All of the instructors within the BirthFit community are specialized in pregnancy and postpartum. That's really, really important because it's very hard to find. And if you're not ready for personalized training, why not consider joining the B community, which is an online gathering made for women by women. I have been a guest speaker, but that's the only time they let men in the room. This is a place where you're going to feel very, very held and seen, where other people can witness the tribulations of becoming a mother and recovering from birth. If you want to try out the B community, you get one month free access, which is a very generous offer using code beloved. Just go to birthfit.com. Full well fertility, you probably don't need any introduction. It's the best prenatal vitamin on the market. They also have a men's virility vitamin. Remember men, 40 to 50% of fertility challenges are due to us, me and you, having low sperm count, low motility, et cetera. You've got to nourish your body. You know, these pills are really, really great. They're an insurance policy to an already healthy lifestyle. They're not going to fix a junk diet. But if you're already eating well, this is how you can ensure that your baby's getting all of the necessary components that you would find in a nutritious diet, including folate, including, I said folate, not folic acid, hint, hint, folate, choline, zinc, magnesium, all of the micronutrients. I mean, there's so much packed into their vitamins. They also have a Nourish Nerves tonic. They have a fish oil that is one of the best out there. Full Wolf Fertility is doing it right. Ayla Barmer's been on the show. Go listen to her episode if you need any further convincing. And if you're ready to make a purchase, go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10, and you'll save 10% on your purchase. Next up, we have none other than Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers has a wide variety of supplements. The supplements that they make that I find the most helpful are those that help you with digestion and those that help you with sleep. Their HCL breakthrough adds acid to your stomach, helps you digest your food so you don't get reflux. It sounds counterintuitive, but this is actually how it works in my practice. They also make masszymes and um, P3OM, which is a really, really potent probiotic. And then on the sleep side, their magnesium breakthrough is nobody's a stranger to magnesium breakthrough. It has seven types of magnesium. It's incredible if you take it about two capsules about 30 minutes before bed. And if you need a little extra support, a scoop or two of their sleep breakthrough, this is an incredibly potent combination in order to help you get the most restful sleep, get you up in the morning feeling less groggy, feeling better rested, better recovered from your hard workouts. If you want to try Bioptimizers products, go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or use code beloved and you'll save 10% on your purchase. Last but not least, Organifi. I met the owner of Organifi, Drew Canoli, years back, and 
He is such a stellar guy. All of the products that he's put into Organifi's product lineup are glyphosate-free. They're non-GMO. They're USDA organic. You can find their green juice for the morning. I prefer their red juice in the afternoon. And then I finish my night off with their gold latte. You're going to find that there are so many organic vegetables, powders, organic fruits, medicinal herbs, functional mushrooms, adaptogenic blends, everything that you find in here is the best on the market. And Drew and his team have ensured that you're going to get the cleanest, most high quality products in the supplement industry. If you want to try out Organifi, go to Organifi.com slash beloved or just use code beloved and you'll save 20% on your purchase. All right, I've rambled enough. Without further ado, here is my beautiful conversation with the beautiful Kimberly Ann Johnson. Kimberly Ann Johnson, I've been following your work for a long, long time. A long time. In fact, we've connected several times through social media and email over the years, but I feel like our relationship is starting to bud (laughs) because of a lot of the things that you've been speaking about recently. So welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Can you just introduce yourself briefly for people who don't know you? I'm sure many of my audience is well aware. Oh, <laughs> thank you. My name is Kimberly Ann Johnson. I am the author of The Fourth Trimester, A Postpartum Guide to Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality. Also the author of Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. And then recently, I co-authored a book with Stephen Jenkinson called Reckoning. And my work in the world is helping women heal from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, and sexual boundary repairs, ruptures rather. I help them repair them. And I'm a single mom. I live in San Diego, California. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. It's hard to do an introduction for somebody like you because you have sort of like me, I'll just describe the way I see you. You're kind of like a Renaissance woman with regards to the way that you synthesize a variety of different things instead of siloing them off as separate disciplines. You actually bring a lot of these really challenging things to understand. You help synthesize them into more tangible ways of looking at the world. And I actually think that's really what we need more of. And Stephen, of course, who was on my podcast, he was episode 84, huge hit that episode because the way Mm. Stephen talks about the way that we interact with our surroundings, the way that we connect to Mother Earth, the way that we connect to the cosmos, and being a former social worker in the death trade, as he says, in palliative care and hospice care, it allows you to really see like death as the consequence of how we show up in the world. In other words, you die the way that you live. And I think you do that in a lot of ways with regards to how women are experiencing birth, how they're experiencing recovery from surgeries, and really going just a you know, way beyond the physical. I know you're also a birth doula and you've sat with a lot of birth. And even before we were recording, you spoke, you know, quite a bit to my heart about rites of passage and even your daughter wanting to see a birth. Like this is a lost rite of passage. So when we talk about birth as a sacred experience, I don't know if you would use those words, but what comes to mind for you? How can we help people understand that this is more than just a merely physical thing that your auto mechanic could fix, you know, just like any Mm. other person? (laughs) Yeah, thanks. And thanks for that reflection about bridging worlds, because I see myself as kind of a messenger 
of creating connections between worlds and being able to communicate mm. things that are sometimes considered specialized, but being able to bring them into the language that someone might be able to hear it without needing specialized education. I think a good place to start is sort of a lament almost of how we could get to a point where things that seem so obvious and so much a part of common sense have now become so distant from us mm -hmm. that we would have to explain to someone something as miraculous and ordinary as a new being coming onto the planet and how that happens yeah. would have an enormous impact, not just on that being, but on every being in that environment, its relations, its place. And so there's something I know that breeds a lot of fire and rage at this point in my life in me of like, how could something that's so obvious require so much remembering and re-education? And the lament that we've come to a place in what we could call culture, but that's questionable, where we might not know what a vegetable that has all of its nutrients tastes like, or that a human, like what it is to be a human being. And so there's so much grief for me living in a time where there's so much that's forgotten and that shows up at the birth altar all the time. Yeah. And that yeah. grief is part of what garners respect from me for the people like you that are willing to stay in that space because in a way the birth altar and the death altar are the place where all of the deficiencies of the culture show up the most. Yeah. I have a friend who's pregnant now. She knows me. She's known my work for a long time. She's talked to me as a counsel and a you know friend. She was actually asking me about egg freezing. And I was telling her, and any piece of advice or counsel that I might offer someone doesn't mean it's for everyone. But in her particular case, I was like, look at you. You're like an estrogen factory. Like, why are you buying into this story about... <laughs> like de waning fertility? Why are you reacting desperately as if this relates to you? You're 32 years old. Like this doesn't relate to you. What about like the flow of life and what about faith and trust? So anyhow, she froze her eggs anyway. And she ended up telling somebody that she was infertile and then got pregnant in two months and then got pregnant with twins spontaneously without any other intervention. All I'm sure egg retrieval I mean, just intuitively, I'm like, that has to impact how eggs are dropping in future ovulations. I should tell everyone here, I'm not a healthcare provider. I'm not a psychologist. My training is in sexological bodywork and somatic experiencing and postpartum advocacy. So I, I come from the lens of an educator and a mother and someone who's accompanied women on this walk, yeah. thousands of them. And then she visited me and she said that she was just scheduling a cesarean. And I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? Because she's doing all this other birth preparation and prepar And she goes, well, I thought I could just make up for it with nurture. You know, I thought, I thought I could just, you know, we'll do that thing, but then I'll just make up for it later. And it just, again, it was like, why do we think that we're robots, that we can just yeah. extract and put together pieces and parts and that we're that in control? Is Because literally it comes down to control. I want to control when this happens and how it happens, even though 
all of us know as care providers, just because you schedule a cesarean doesn't mean it's going to be easier, better. doesn't mean the outcomes are going to be better. So you're not, you know, you don't get the opt-out option of birthing, but then it just always, to me, comes back to this fractal of how birth itself is reflecting and sending off its ripple effects, which is why it's so incredible when you're at an actual birth that's oxytocin-filled and physiological, because that's becoming rarer and rarer. And I think people don't understand that what that means, that means intact relationship. That means more empathy in the culture. That means people who have a sense of harmony with their environment. Now, does like a quote unquote bad birth mean that you're just like screwed? Of course not. There's always repair available. And especially when the postpartum time is well tended, we can repair a lot from birth. But if we could have a sacred birth, and of course the word sacred also is very you know, most people hear sacred and they hear, you know, harps and chimes and golden light <laughs> and birth is nothing like that. Maybe, you know, some people's births is, but usually it's bloody and sometimes it's very messy and it's a down and dirty sacred. It's an earth sacred. It's not a spirit filled, you know, heavens open sacred. And maybe it's both. Maybe it's everything. But we can't also just sign up for the goddess TM birth, because that's not how it works either. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's so much came up for me there, this idea, you know, you mentioned like the role of Instagram in changing the sort of paradigm of birth. And I actually think there's quite a bit of harm being done on Instagram, which I'm sure you must agree on some level based on what you just said. This idea that your birth doesn't have to have pain, your birth can be all of these things. Like, that's all true. Absolutely, it can. You can advocate. You can have the dream birth in the hospital, at home, whatever. That may all be possible. And I'm never going to say that it's not because then I'm putting limitations on what one person's potential is. But the reality is that if we are going to bypass the sacred nature of this transformational experience, there's nothing safe about transforming. Transforming is the thing that holds most of us back. It holds us in a victim archetype, for example, as we were talking about. A transformational experience is in and of itself, conditionally, going to be very hard. The issue with mother culture, if we just want to put a blanket term on it, is that we bypass this on both sides of the conversation, which is overly interventive births and perhaps free birth, on the other hand, we're bypassing in many regards using flowery language and whatnot, we're bypassing the fact that it's supposed to be hard. If it's not hard, if you're able to have an epidural and watch Netflix for 14 hours while your cervix is dilating, you're missing the point of what is happening here. If this was merely a physical experience, then yeah, that all makes sense. But it isn't. We have to honor it and respect it the way that we respect psychedelic medicines, for example. And just before we started recording, I said, you don't get the birth that you want. You get the birth that you need. You don't get the trip or the journey that you want. You get the trip or journey that you need. Well, I want to say one thing, which is that underworld journeys are not trauma. So there's a lot of information out there that's like, well, birth is inherently traumatic. No. Between pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum journey, everyone's going to have their underworld. They're going to have a descent in one of those places. But somehow in this sort of Protestant overculture, there's an idea that that means something's wrong. Right, 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 right. That you didn't do something right. And so that is either a punishment 
or there's something wrong. And then what happens is if you frame it as a problem and the people around you buy into it with you that this is a big problem, then you end up diagnosing something that's actually an underworld experience. Right, right, right. And then we're sort of endlessly in purgatory where we're going around and around with, you know, extending a mental health checklist as a substitute for postpartum care or what postpartum recovery actually looks like from a physiological perspective. Yeah. So it's really important to me that because as a human being, a homo sapiens, which I am very invested in being, and I hope that my ancestors remain homo sapiens and we learn how to do this better and more harmoniously, it is imperative that we go through these rites of passage. And for women, they're inbuilt. Yeah. So they are just yeah. built in for us. Men have to go out looking for ways to create that level of difficulty and mountain climb or, you know, river walk in order to get that same level of soul upheaval. And ultimately, soul upheaval happens at the level of the body. That's why people fast. That's why people take psychedelics, to have that big intensity. And so why do you think people are going in this direction of intensity seeking? Because it's lacking in our day-to-day life. And those people that you're mentioning that dial it in and watch the television while their body's dilating, those people on some level it registers in their system that they haven't been through the whole process. And so then later in life in other ways, when they have anxiety or grief or a really rough perimenopause or menopause, there's something that's still under the surface that didn't get a chance. Right. The upheaval didn't get a chance to happen. Right. So it's a call for maturation, for not feeling like when the world doesn't match our expectations, that something's wrong with the world. Yeah. Yeah, And that somehow we don't have to adapt. We don't have to displace ourselves or become displaced. Yeah. You speak so beautifully about this. You're giving me language that is even helping me in my counseling of couples who've been through either hard things or they're anticipating a hard thing. They want to outsource it to somebody. It's natural. It's not, we've all been conditioned to do that. We outsource our power throughout our entire lives, why would it be any different for this? The doctor will save me. The midwife will save me. My doula will save me. I'll get this fixed later, you know, as opposed to, hey, we could show up as birth workers and we can acknowledge this is a hard thing. And if we don't go through this hard thing, it doesn't go away. You can't hide under the covers from it. I also want to add that a lot of women have natural, unmedicated, undisturbed births in the hospital, relatively undisturbed, because you really can't have an undisturbed hospital birth. But they may have healthy mom, healthy baby, and they feel great about the birth. But then something comes up later, and they don't know what to do with it. There's this undigested morsel, if you look at it through the lens of German new medicine. Something there wasn't uh, integrated in the process. Maybe it was the anesthesia, where you're now disconnected Mm -hmm. from your body. Maybe it was the way that people spoke to you while you were in the throes of labor. Maybe it was that somebody, you know, without consent, stuck their hand someplace and violated you. I mean, these are all possibilities and they happen every day in the hospital experience. Then they end up in their next pregnancy and they've got this undigested something and it is coming out double at this point. Right. So the way I like to frame trauma is that it's not something that happened to you. In sometimes some regards it is, but it's something that your body was this incredible stressful thing that you went through, but we haven't integrated it afterwards. That's why even after a challenging, let's say a, an ayahuasca experience, there's a closing ceremony. You have to integrate this process and it might take years 
But that lack of integration is actually where I think we're lacking in the care of our postpartum clients who are presenting with very fantastical things afterwards. And it's like, how could this be related to your birth? You had a healthy mom, healthy baby. You know, you had all the things. So since you do a lot of myofascial work, can you maybe speak to that, what I just described? You can also totally disagree with me. Like that's what this conversations are all about. I definitely agree with you that the perceived outcome right away, you know, Pam England talks about this so much. And I studied with her with birth story listening and I really think she's brilliant and contributed so much to how we can be better birth story listeners and help women understand their birth experiences. But we can't rush that process. So the body has its own time. And often it's very wise in how it uses its resources. So when we're caring for an infant, I talk about how it feels like as a mother that you're swimming underwater and you've got your baby that you're holding up above your head, trying to keep the baby in the upper world as you're in the underworld. And that's a really different experience because I'd had a lot of underworld journeys before I became a mom. But when Mm. I became a mom, now I'm responsible for keeping someone completely alive at the same time as I've never been here before. I particularly didn't have other people around me to help me contain that experience or understand it or reflect it to me or, you know, anything. So our nervous system is like a record. So a record, you know, a vinyl record going around. And when there's a rupture, it's like there's a scratch. Mm. And so every time you come around, scratches on that same place, scratches on that same place. So that scratch could be something that happened in the pelvis. So I've worked with people who were in a car accident and fractured their pelvis. And then it seems like everything is repaired. But then when it comes to birth, there's something that comes back up related to that. Or I've worked with someone I talk about in the call of the wild who had an IUD, totally wanted the IUD, loved the person she was with. But the experience of the IUD reverberated to a knee surgery that she had had in the past and not being listened to by her provider and it really changing her trajectory of being able to be active or not. So when it comes to birth, a lot of times past abortions could come up. It doesn't mean they will too, though, because I'm a sexual assault survivor and I was really worried because I knew about this. So I was a bit over obsessing about if that was going to come up in the birth because I heard that it could. So it doesn't mean that it necessarily will. It's usually a lot more mysterious and less linear than how we would put it together with our rational mind. But scar tissue is a living artifact of trauma. So it's a tangible trauma. We need scar tissue. Of course we do. We need wounds to close. But then adhesions are a result of inflammation and undigested somatic memory. So when we put our hands on the tissue, Oftentimes, the results are much faster because the tissue receives witnessing touch that it didn't receive before, and the body will offer up the information, whether that's emotional or sensation or movement that it couldn't do Mm. previously. So like I've had people who have pain on one side of their cesarean scar, and it's only on the one side. And then when I place my hand on that side, that leg wants to kick and they're like, I don't understand. And then all of a sudden they're remembering one care provider that was really rude that was on that side that if they could have kicked, they couldn't because they're under anesthesia and they also have a social nervous system that's telling them, do not kick this person because they've got power over you and they could really hurt you if you do that. They're inhibiting the movement. But when they finally get something to push against, that pain that's in the incision site starts to unravel and then the tissue starts to let go. Wow. 
because the vagina is this incredible shape-shifting miraculous organ made to be so mucosal tissue very receptive to molding it just as easily as it expands in order to allow something to move in or out of it it will also repair very easily with the right nervous system connectivity listening lack of agenda And so that could either be towards more tonicity, which I consider to be a healthy sympathetic response. So if someone's tissue is very lax because maybe they just gave up at some point because they were saying what they wanted, saying what they wanted, and then Mm. it just was like, no one's listening. Or if they had a mechanical delivery where their ligaments actually got mechanically overstretched by vacuum extraction or forceps. And so that ligamental structure either didn't have the nutrient density that it needed because of nutrition or because just mechanically this person has so much elastinous connective tissue or the person didn't stay out of gravity or all of the above. At the moment that the body receives that touch, it can just gel itself back together because it's able to complete that earlier Mm. cycle that couldn't happen in the moment. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that also happens with, I'm conjecturing here because what you're describing is not something that I have direct experience with, although I have several friends who work in the myofascial release space and they all kind of speak the same way like you do, where it seems tangential from the like strictly Western medical lens that you have reduced through, you know, thanks to Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes, we've reduced everything down to the sum of parts. But there's what you're actually describing is that the life force and how you as a human being experience life is far greater than the sum of your parts. There's far more going on here. It's kind of funny because to me, it seems so obvious. Like that's yeah, what's yeah, like yeah. to me, it just is like, well, of course this makes sense, but probably it's because I experienced it. So for instance, I had a diastasis after I gave birth and it repaired in real time. So when my mentor was touching the posterior surface of my pubic bone, which is where the rectus abdominis attaches and certain layers of the obliques, and we were talking about a situation where I did not say something that I needed to say, the the linea alba just reorganized itself in real time and she felt it and I felt it. So it seems like a miracle, but it's like, of course, our body is responding to all of these it's not law of attraction. It's actual physical touch. I mean, look at the Sistine Chapel. Like we've understood this for a long time, that hands, that contact and presence impacts things. And it makes total sense that the tissue is going to hold either hypertensity. Like I've worked with a lot of people with vulvodynia and vaginismus that the vagina is a sphincter. So if it's not safe, it's going to close just like the cervix is a sphincter. And so some earlier danger that doesn't even have to be sexual, that could be some other kind of situation that caused them to close. Of course, you're going to close the most vulnerable part of your body is remembered there. And it's just the crazy approach to think that prying a sphincter open is going to be the thing that helps somebody eventually. So I understand why for some people it seems fantastical. And I'm actually, when people describe me as woo, it kind of makes me laugh because I understand how I could be seen that way. But you know, I'm not overly scientific because I'm actually not that educated in certain ways on science, but I'm not a magical thinker by any stretch of the imagination. So your and my views don't line up across the board on everything from vaccines to whatever. It's like, but the thing is postpartum and birth are the places where the interconnection of emotional, spiritual, sexual, 
physiological, they're so intertwined. And that's why, I mean, my daughter's 15 years old. So this is like a 15 year old thing for me. And I'm a Gemini. So I'm like on to the next thing. I like to like write the next book or have the next idea. Like my creativity overwhelms me. And then I'm like, you know, I don't like to be bored basically. So why would I still be talking about postpartum at this point? It's because it has everything. If we figure this place out, we have what we need for cultural repair in all directions. Yeah. So it's this synthesis in yoga. It's called the jeweled net of Indra. It's like there's a knot in this net. And if we can elaborate on that, then we will have the other things that we need in order to thrive as homo sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to go back to what you were saying about social media because I do have a strong opinion about it and I think it's really important and it's changed a lot. So my book came out five years ago. Kimberly, can I just add something while we're on that topic? I was thoughtful, you know, I've done some interviews with women who, like Emily Abbott, Jade Bryce, who have found they're utilizing ther- you know, modalities to provide the therapeutic benefit that you're describing through, we'll call it resonant touch or just bearing witness through touch to something that happened to somebody in the past. They use cervical wands. They use a yoni involver massage. They use these types of things in order to help release that trauma. I assume it probably works in the same way that you're describing, but this is a world that I'm fairly new to. So I don't have quite the language to describe that, but it makes me wonder as you're describing this, if a woman and her partner are connected and deeply connected such that when they're intimate, there is a flood of the love hormones through their bodies, oxytocin, namely, and a variety of other endorphins, is the insertion of the man's penis, like we're talking about penetrative intercourse, is that something that could actually help to recalibrate the nervous system in this way if these two people are doing it with... I don't know if it's the right word, but through, you know, the intention of reconnecting and re-equilibrating. Do you think that's possible? I definitely think that's possible. There's obviously so many elements to that. And it really would depend on what you're working on. And I can see, you know, for prolapse, for instance, that could be really useful. And I have to say that for most of the people that I work with, their principal concern is that they don't feel receptive to their partner and they're concerned about that. And it's not because of their partner necessarily, it's because of them and they don't feel the same after they've had a baby. Mm. And there's a degree of shame and embarrassment and there's a degree of confusion. And so they're coming to me for me to help them figure out how to want sex again and how to want their partner again. Yeah, But I think sex can be inherently healing And for sure, a partner could have a tuned touch. Again, though, like a lot of cesarean deliveries, the lack of completion is that nothing ever came out. And so people don't want something coming in. And so until they have the chance to, like their uterus will go into spontaneous contractions sometimes on my table and actually complete the physiological vaginal birth. They just are not receptive to something entering. And they're so confused because they're like, why did my vagina have anything to say about this when I had a cesarean delivery? So it's like an added level of like, what is happening? And also I don't always do internal work. I often do primarily because there's so few people who do it in an integrative way. But I don't always, because a lot of times it's really bone holding. It's really 
there's other layers of repair that happen way before there's a need for the internal touch. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely find penetrative sex healing and important in my own journey. I just think that it's complex because of also, you know, it can really get into this thing of like the woman is the problem and the man's got to solve the problem that is the woman. And (laughs) That's a common thing where it's like the women come to my office, like, I'm the problem. I don't want sex. I should want sex. And it's like, well, number one, do you probably want sex, but you don't want the sex that's being offered to you. But you've also never had the tools to communicate about how you do want it. And so it's a bit of an impasse. Yeah, totally. But definitely. And also, I personally don't use tools in my practice. I just use my hands. And I wear gloves and I'm always clothed. So that's a part of my code of ethics with sexological body work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and a lot of these two women I mentioned who are friends of mine, but they've been on the podcast, Jade Bryce and Emily Abbott. If you guys listening haven't heard those episodes, they were two of my most popular because I think it's speaking to things that a lot of women experience, but don't really have a way of working on it themselves. And their practices are not necessarily here's how to have better sex with your partner. Here's 10, you know, it's like some Cosmo article. Theirs are very personal, sometimes using, you know, quartz cervical wands. And there's a lot of inner work from, you know, that's generated and directed by themselves. So, you know, to your point, given all of these other factors through the lens of either culture, experience, whatever, shame, of course, in our Protestant Catholic upbringings about masturbation, about putting things inside of you, it may actually be an easier door to open if there were, you know, more practices where, you know, it's either a woman working with a woman or it's a person who's able to work on themselves as opposed to relying on the complexities of our relationships, which if there's any couple out there that doesn't have any weird sexual tension in their relationship, you're completely lying to yourself. Like we all have insecurities. We all have these evolving challenges in our relationships. It's just the reality of who we are. But if we have these personal practices, perhaps that's another way of, and Jade actually did say she healed from her birth traumas through some of these tantric practices that she had learned about and visualization and everything else. So anyways, I won't beat that one down anymore. Let's turn to the next topic. Well, I think that it is important though, because birth really is a woman's space. And it always has been until a couple of hundred years ago. (laughs) So it makes sense that our pelvic care would be in the hands of women. So when I work, I sit on the table and I have my legs straddled over the table. And then the woman is lying down and she has her legs over my thighs. And that moment when I just have my hands either on their thighs or on their pelvic bones, it is inevitably a moment that it's pure awe for most people. And many, many times, countless times, and I do this sometimes when I lead workshops, I just have people pair up after a lot of preparation to get there. It feels like this is ancient. It feels like women used to do this for each other all the time. It feels like for thousands of years, this is what we did for one another. It didn't have to be specialized. Someone didn't have to know a lot. If you're grounded and you can feel your own body, then you can contact someone else's bones with touch. Mm. And it feels actually not sexual. And that's so surprising because for most women, they're used to being touched either sexually or clinically. Right. And so always for a purpose, not just for a presence. Mm. And so then when it's just like, I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to fix you. Even though you think you're here to be fixed. (laughs) I don't think so. I'm here to just be with you and be with whatever shows up. 
and listen and help you learn to listen and help you become a better translator of your body's signals and help you learn about yourself and learn about your own anatomy, mm. worlds open. Because mm. nobody's first <laughs> sexual experience is someone just like placing their hand on your heart and breathing with you or placing their hand on your genitals and just breathing. It's always getting somewhere, or going somewhere, or doing something or figuring it out. So it is really, really powerful to be in a space that includes your genitals, that has presence to it. And eight years ago now, I moved to the US and I had been living in Brazil for eight years. And people were just being open to the fact that internal pelvic floor work wasn't weird mm. and that it actually might be helpful. And then it was really a short time, maybe 18 months, where like people were like, no, when you talk about this, I know I need it. Like, I definitely need this. And then I had full practices in San Diego, LA, Vancouver, Chicago, New York. And my waiting list got so long. And people are like, oh, that must feel great. No, it felt awful. Because yeah. I was like, wow, this is the degree of the extent that we know that we need this kind of holding. Because there's so much that's living in our pelvises. And with the tantric practices and, you know, that's like a really huge category. So yeah, yeah. I don't want to whittle it down because that could mean so many different things. But what I do want to say about things like orgasmic meditation, which is a practice I really love and I think is a great postpartum practice for couples and cervical wands and these processes like dearmoring is that I work with a lot of people who have done those and realized that they were really overriding something that was a lot simpler. So it was another place that they went to try to override something. And they didn't realize it at the time. But when they come to work with me, we're undoing the stages they skipped, trying to be like, I got to fix this. You know, I'm so worried about my relationship. Okay, let's do oming. And then it's like, that was just too much for wow. their system. Yeah. So I tend to work a lot more what we call in somatic experiencing and chemistry titrated because our culture is really pushed in this intensity mode. You know, it's like psychedelics, the big cathartic orgasm, multi-orgasmic, and that's the kind of birth I want. And it's like, okay, but what's happening to lead us to that place? Because right. if we're talking right. alphabet, that's at like letter Z and we might be at like letter B. Yeah. So what are yeah. the stages we need? to prepare ourselves to even have the capacity to hold those bigger experiences. So I just wanted to name that, but certainly the fact that like genital touch non-sexually or even sexually and therapeutically is now a mainstream conversation. That's a huge change in the last seven years. It's a very powerful tool. So I just want people to know, like you can't go to a trauma training weekend that doesn't exist. Like, I went to three years and actually I did it in four years of somatic experiencing school because I did half of Portuguese and half of English. So the fact that trauma is now this buzzword and everybody knows about trauma, everybody doesn't. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. And it's actually just informational, basically garbage because talking about embodiment is not embodiment. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Just isn't. So you can talk about it, but it doesn't mean it's happening. And I noticed that's another place where people don't have good discernment and where they're abandoning what they know based on the energy of what it is that like Instagram boundaries, like the way that people are expressing boundaries. I'm like, no, you're just being an actual 
total asshole. Yeah. Like that's not actually a good yeah. boundary. That's assholery. Yeah. And like, just cause you're a woman doing it doesn't not make it bullshit. Right. It just makes you hyper compensatory. So on the subject of Instagram. So when I was studying with Michelle O'Donnell, the French obstetrician who works in Brazil sometimes, which is why I was able to study with him. His point of view was very much based on animal behavior, which is that animals usually give birth in privacy. So he was sort of a consultant at the birth of my daughter. Heloise Alessa was my midwife and they were partners and working together. That really influenced the kind of care that I was offered, which is basically like we want as few people around as possible and we want you to just be undisturbed. Rationally, that made all kinds of sense. I'm really into Feldenkrais. You know, my mom told me like a cat had kittens under my crib when I was a baby. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Animals want privacy to be by themselves. However, we are also human animals that have social nervous systems. And I had come from Boulder where birth was like a carnival, like basically like your acupuncturist, your, you know, your massage therapist is going to come by, your yoga sangha was going to drop in. And I was living in another country where I didn't really have many friends because I had only been there for a few months. But in my spirit, it was like, yeah, I want people around, you know, and I'm also, I'm pretty gregarious person, but it was like, well, they say that's not good. So I shouldn't do that. Well, that's called outsourcing power because it really doesn't matter that they're like the birth experts. Because it's my birth, except for it does matter because you're doing it together. So it's very confusing. And they said it wasn't good for my mom to be there because my mom doesn't speak the same language as my daughter's father. And so I also was feeling really bad about like sending my mom and dad away, but who doesn't have a confusing relationship with their mom? So I was also like, well, maybe that's true. You know, maybe she shouldn't be there. I didn't know. And I think that it's important to say that pregnancy and birth is one of the hardest places to hold on to your power. You're losing your neofrontal cortical rationality. So if that's where you're used to getting your power from, that's getting hazy and obscured and you're gaining other brain matter that's relational. Also, that relationality makes you want to take care of the health of the tribe. And it's a really a lot to ask one person in the most vulnerable time of their life to fabricate safety. That should be something that the tribe is doing. That's a nervous system state that a birthing woman shouldn't even be occupying, but she's forced to nowadays. So I recently watched this beautiful little mini documentary about Native Americans, First Nations people in Canada. And they were saying that they invite everybody because when the baby's born, they want to make sure their relations are around and they want to make sure that if something goes wrong, that the mother also has her relations around so that they can walk her through that portal, whatever that portal is. And it just made me reflect again on culture because it doesn't really work to to extract pieces and parts of culture either. And being white North Americans, we don't really have a birth culture anymore. So we're sort of floundering around trying to piece something together. And that creates a lot of disturbance in the system. Another thing that Michelle O'Donnell talked a lot about was not watching videos of births. And at the time when I was going through doula training, we were actually still in VHS. So they were like putting the VHS and it was like a real big deal to have like now leave in a birth video to watch or, oh, who has the Baltic birth video series, right? So it was like, it was hard to get a hold of video of a birth to watch. We watched a few of them. and. Nowadays, every time I open my feed, there's like 
a baby coming out of a vagina, basically. I don't know what your feed's like, but mine is just like pussy (laughs) all day long. And now I even understand what Michelle is saying more because seeing it is not being there. And it tricks your brain into thinking that it is. So it gives us an idealization of reality because it's not reality. It's a part of it. There's not a 14-hour video that you're watching, right? So you're not seeing the waves. You're not seeing the stalls. You're only seeing like specific highlighted moments, which is so exactly what this culture does now, which is we take out the entire fable and we extract the lesson or the moral, and then we only give the moral without the entire fable that got us to a place of crystallization where that might even be relevant. So instead of, no, I actually, I mean, you know what it's like to be at a two-day labor. It's like, I mean, that is some freaking stamina. And also your system is learning what the waves are that help someone to build capacity to hold a pushing phase, whatever that might be. I mean, I've had clients that don't hire a birth doula and hire a birth photographer. I'm like, what the fuck? Like what kind of great, like seriously. And I don't believe everyone needs a doula either. I'm just saying, if you're in the position where you're hiring people and your hiring process is, should I have someone documenting this or should I have someone supporting me? I just, I don't even know what to say about that culture that we're in, where you think that the presentation of what happens is as important or more important than actually being there yourself. And furthermore, the idea that someone could be postpartum and then posting on Instagram like three days postpartum about the postpartum experience before they've even been through it or lived it, to me is just completely, it's insanity. And no wonder people feel insane and feel anxious and feel exhausted and feel depressed because they're inundated by all this and they're not able to sort through it or filter it. When I left hospital-based OBGYN practice several years ago, I had the option to join the midwife community as a home birth attendant. And I was getting all of my ducks in a row and I was figuring out what it was going to cost. But then I realized, you know, licensure was on the horizon. I'm going to be competing with the Kentucky midwives. And they've worked hard for this. They've been doing great work for years. And I love the traditional midwifery model of care, but I'll never be a midwife. So while I do attend some home births, I also figured out that if I really, really believed in the midwifery model of care, let me do my best to make it possible for midwives to do the thing that midwives do so well, which is providing patient-centered, compassionate prenatal care all the way through the postpartum time period. This realization gave birth to my collaborator program. I invite midwives of all types in any state to check out my website. It's belovedholistics.com slash collaborate. What you'll find there is that I've put together a program whereby you can have me as an MD consultant to bounce anything off of any issues you have with interpreting labs, perhaps some help with clinical decision-making for your patient that just had some wacky urinalysis labs come back. At the gold level, I also will prescribe medications, order imaging, order labs. I am willing to get licensed in your state. And if you're in a state that requires a prescriptive authority or a supervising physician, there's all these different names. I'm also willing to do that at the gold level. So all of the details are available at BelovedHolistics.com. Just click the Midwives tab at the top, and you'll get to see all of the information there. And then when you're ready to enroll, you can just pop over to the website, join it. It's a monthly membership fee. You also get access to all of my summaries of ACOG's practice bulletins and also many of their committee opinions. 
and at the gold level, there's twice monthly peer review. You're going to have a whole community of midwives, my entire network, in order to help support you, whether you're early in practice or you've been doing this for many years. So go to belovedholistics.com slash collaborator. Just click the midwives tab in the menu on my website and we can get started working together. All right, let's get back to my conversation now. I have never really thought about Instagram like that, but you bring up a lot of really, really important points. I think a lot of people may be, you know, confronted by this because it's like, hey, this guy or this man or woman may have never seen a birth before. And this is the first time they're seeing what it looks like when that little purple face pops out, shoulders aren't even, you know, out yet. Maybe that's important for them. And they might be right, but I don't think that's actually what you're saying. What you're really saying is, is that just like with everything, we dilute the experience down to just this moment, this outcome here. And then we try to put the whole rest of the story behind it. But it's impossible to do that because the experience cannot be videotaped. It cannot be photographed. I mean, it's you could say the same for people who go to a concert and are watching the concert through their phone the entire time and then trying to elaborate what it was like to be at the concert by showing you the video of the person on stage that instead of them feeling the experience of an entire collective swaying together, they were so caught up in just capturing the moment. I just wonder though, when I hear someone seeing a purple face popping out for the first time, and I feel that in my body, I kind of got like a prickly feeling from my head and my neck and my shoulder blades. And I think I can see a rational argument for like the portrayal of birth in popular media, which is emergency crisis, woman on the gurney, pushing her through everyone yelling push. And so seeing like a counter narrative, but I'm just wondering what is the impact of having everything delivered to you rather than you having to To go towards something? Yeah. So like you don't have to do anything. You just sit in your bed and you have a curiosity at one moment and you put in hashtag birth or what, I don't know what you do. And then you seek that out. Yeah. But my question then is, is birth getting better? And we both know that the answer to that is no. Right. So that makes me know, okay, well then that actually isn't an effective tactic because we have, there's like 10,000 folk research studies from 2019 and 2020 showing that birth's not getting better. So if anxiety is skyrocketing and we know that from 2007 and another study, I think is like, Oh, I can't pull that up. I just read Girls on the Brink by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. But we know that the incidence of anxiety specifically in girls is like just going through the roof, which is anxiety is incomplete flight response in the nervous system and an inundation of things you cannot escape as well as Mm. social nervous system inundation. Then I know that's not a scientific correlation, but it just makes sense because we see how people are responding and we see you know, worldwide birth is getting longer, which means harder because the more time, the more exhaustion, the more everything. So if it was helping, I think we would know. Yeah. But I mean, of course there's going to be people that say, oh, but it's building visibility and it's giving people hope. And yeah, but it's also reinforcing narratives of individualism. It's reinforcing, I would venture to say, and this is based on my work with Steven Jenkinson and proximity to stories that he shares, but also I think it's an observable phenomenon that perhaps documenting something visually might detract from its sacredness. 
Mm. So what does it mean to be at a quote-unquote ceremony and not have to have a picture of it? What does it mean to go, you know, he tells a story about like a Balinese ceremony that he was at and it's everybody wearing whatever kind of clothes they want. And is there's sort of like stadium seating and selfies. And it's like, what is that doing to the culture of the people that live there? Because certainly their ceremony being seen is going to shift as a result of being seen. It's not going to stay intact. Not that yeah. indigenous people are also like wax sculptures that are not in response to what's happening in the world. But if we as white North Americans are so starving for culture that we've got to go to Peru and we've got to go to the Brazilian Amazon and we've got to go to Bali and we've got to go to India to feel what it is to be there, then what does it mean that not only do we take ourselves there and all of our poverties and starvation, but that we also then document it in a way that those people themselves will see themselves in a way that they never have. And I would say the same is true for birth. What does it mean that instead of our experience, we're flashing out to yeah. how we look in that experience and then how we want other people to remember us in right. that experience? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. We don't even have a single picture of either of our births in the moments. In fact, one of the birth workers, Stephanie, my wife, gave her permission to take a photo. But it was that like the exact wrong time from my wife's perspective and they were all deleted. Like it just wasn't a part of the story, but I sure as hell remember being there. She sure as hell remembers being there. And granted we had a two hour from waters opening to a baby out on asleep on her chest in her bedroom, 50 feet from here. So it's not like there was a ton of time to document anyways, but the point being that's one thing. Well, I if you had a birth photographer, they would have been able to document it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I want to play devil's advocate because I think a lot of people probably in my circles would agree, and I'm sure you might agree to some level here, in a culture that is running away from birth and death, these two sacred rites of passage. We don't want to look at it. You're not allowed to talk about it. They're both kind of messy in some regards. Certainly birth is very messy, and that's a part of that rawness of birth is really why it's such a compelling thing for us to maybe have some exposure to before we go through it. But in a culture where these things, until recently, the father of the baby wasn't even allowed to be in the room. We have this distancing from this sacred rite of passage. So it's no wonder it's such a source of fear when a woman is going to give birth at the age of 30 or whatever. So if it's true that maybe we do need proximity to these sacred rites of passage and we need to be present with those opportunities so that it's a part of our story, not an abrupt about face where we're hit with a ton of bricks when it actually happens, what would be an alternative? Like, How can we change this part of our culture where this is no longer something to be feared, but it's actually a privilege in the same way that Stephen and I would agree it's a privilege to die someday. It's also a privilege to give birth. That doesn't mean it's easy. It can't be romanticized or whatever else, but you're going to go through it. This is something that is a part of the experience. This is a rite of passage. How can we provide that if it's not through you know, the four-second attention span of most people on social media? You can sit in circle with women and listen to their stories about birth, about menopause, about sexual initiation. You can seek out people elder to you whose lives you admire in some way and ask real questions. You can begin to apprentice darkness and slowing down and what it's like to do the opposite of acceleration. And you can practice 
being out of control. Mm. And you can do that sexually. You can practice moving beyond your comfort zone in sensation and people are giving birth. So you can make yourself available to your neighbor when they've just had a baby and take them food and sit with them when they're in their postpartum time and ask the mother how she's doing. This is part of it. It's not just about what we're going to be given and spoon fed. It's like, well, what are you willing to move towards? Are you willing to be uncomfortable? You know, it's very uncomfortable these days because let's just talk about walking around with a baby. People don't know if you're there allowed to talk to your baby because some people are very protective and don't want you to talk or touch their baby or their belly. Some people don't care. Some people are just in their own shell and don't even notice, right? So there's not, like in Brazil, everybody talks to babies. It's so endearing. It's like you're on the subway and like a teenage boy is just going crazy like an old grandma would over your baby, just (laughs) cooing and awing. When I moved from Brazil to the US, my daughter was nine months and she just looking around like, where's the fanfare, everybody? Here I am. Like, why isn't anyone talking to me? Like, you know, because it was just so foreign to not be met by all of the people. It's like how people in the U.S. are about puppies. That's how they are about babies in Brazil. (laughs) That's sweet. Yeah. So we have to risk these crusts around us of, you know, what we can ask of our neighbors, what they can ask of us. Do we dare to push in against some of these things that feel like, oh, that's too personal, but actually I really need information about that? Yeah, I think that I asked this sort of a cheeky question because I know that really wrapped up in this issue around birth and the confrontation that these rites of passages pose is actually not about the birth. It's not even about the death. It's actually that within our conditioning, cultural conditioning, there's actually a lack of reverence. There's a lack of presence. There's a lack of patience. Those are not the things that have been incentivized. Instead, it's productivity. It's siloing yourself off from your community. You know, it's all you. You're the one that has to do all of this. And when our culture from an early age were raised to be the every man or every woman and to value, you know, the new gods versus the old gods, this, we are lacking the reverence for the process instead, you know, in exchange for perhaps feeling entitled to the outcome. And I think that that lack of reverence is also leading to an environmental catastrophe on the brink. You know, it's, There's a story I told you I went on this hunt recently, the sacred hunt with a guy named Monsal Denton, who is a young guy. He's in his 30s, but I see him as a mentor. He is deeply connected to the ground, and he sees hunting, especially for men, as a way of taking the firewalk and becoming connected with your food, that this is actually perhaps an answer to the psychopathic behavior we're seeing you know, across the many generations now, where men don't have an outlet for these primal urges And at the same time, there's this conflict with hunting whereby if you are deeply connected with the ground beneath your feet and Mother Earth, you fall in love with this deer that you're now going to kill because your family needs to eat. Sitting with that conflict is actually the rite of passage. It has nothing to do with what it's actually like to kill a deer, although that makes it very confronting. I think that a story that Monsell told me is, you know, this kid goes to his grandfather and says, I want to become a man. I want to learn to hunt. So he says, okay, go and think about the deer you're going to kill. And then he comes back a week later and he's like, I got that. Okay, now go find the place where you saw the deer in your vision and in the woods. And so he spends weeks and finds the space. And he's like, okay, grandfather, I found it. Okay, now I want you to go to that place and I want you to 
bring the deer in close. Imagine the deer's getting so close that you can bring the deer into your heart. And this kid's like months later, he misses the season. He has to wait a whole another year to continue the process. And he finally goes back and is like, I am ready to hunt. Like, give me a gun. He's like, okay, I want you to go and kill the deer. And so he goes and he stomps out into the woods and he's now in love with this deer and he shoots the deer and sobs and cries and brings the deer back and is like, I did it. Finally, I'm a man now. And he said, okay, when you can have as much reverence for the blade of grass, you know, under your foot that you're crushing as you did for killing that deer, that's when you're a man. These stories, these medicine stories, I think have been lost. I think fortunately people like you and Stephen and even Michel Odant, the way that he speaks about birth, these are the stories, this reverence for the process and the ascension from everything from orgasm to conception to this ejection reflex, you know, of milk and of baby. This is all the process. This is what we're lacking, I think, in our society as opposed to, and what we've been given instead is these spoonfuls of outcomes. You want this pretty beautiful birth afterwards, don't you? Well, that bypasses the work of transforming from maid into mother or from me into a father. Like This is the process is where the work is, but we don't have reverence for process anymore. I've spoken enough. I'll pause there and let you comment if you'd like. Hmm. Well, I have a lot to say about hunting just because you know my work is about a predator-prey relationship mm. and wildness and there's a lot of ways that we can glamorize the wild and we can, it's sort of like we're so domesticated that the wild seems so separate from yeah. us. And then even the wild becomes something that somehow isn't dangerous or isn't threatening. Mm. It's like, it's glamorous and exotic, but mm. it's not like totally confronting. So I went hunting at an apprentice and my trade with her for observing sessions and training in this work was that she hunts regularly in Montana and to go on a hunting trip with her and her family. And we were hunting deer and elk. And on the trip, I did not even see a deer except for one that someone else killed. So five <laughs> days in the Montana wilderness where someone told me, oh, it's going to be super easy for you because there's tons of deer there. I, who think I'm super quiet and like not, you know, I can really easily go into meditation mode and no one will feel me and all of it. <laughs> I had so many deers cross my tracks. It was snowing. So I would walk out one way. And then when I walked back, there were deer tracks all over my tracks. So they were definitely around me, but I did not see them. And so I was expecting to have this, you know, big experience and look in the eyes of the deer and like, could I really do it once I see the deer? And I didn't even see one, let alone get one in my gun sights, except yeah. for, like I said, one of the experienced hunters in the group had shot. So I actually felt like there was a lot of elegance in that and a lot of the lessons of humility that any good hunter, and I'm sure people listening know this, but I didn't really know the distinction between, I knew it intuitively, but that there's prize hunting and meat hunting. Of course, And yeah. I was with meat hunters. So yeah. I was with people who use all the parts of the animal and know how to skin it and know how to butcher it. The organs it are, the, are the trophy. <laughs> packing it out and everything. Yeah. And with tags and, you know, sure. in responsiveness to the environment. But I think there is something really beautiful in coming home with nothing and not only nothing, almost less than nothing, you know, just the experience of what it's like to sit yeah. and it doesn't matter how much you want it. And it has a lot to do with skill and a lot of skills that I don't have because yeah. I wasn't raised in that environment. And then not just the skill of holding a gun, right? The skill of waiting, the skill of mutual reciprocity and beyond what my mind would make it into. Yeah. 
But the other thing that I always like to remind people, because we have a lot of negative associations with the word predator, and my work is a lot about helping women activate their inner predator. Wild animals like wolves, for instance, they are in a sacred reciprocity with a herd. And so they usually do take the weakest member of, let's say, like antelope or deer in order that the group is preserved. So that's kind of gnarly if you think about it with humans, because it makes it seem like there's this weird social Darwinism at work. But the point is really that there is a moment of eye contact between the predator and the prey where there is a type of agreement. But what we see as predation is actually feral behavior. So for instance, like a wolf that destroys a hen house, that's not a wolf that's only been in the wild. That's a wolf that's been in proximity to domestication and as such has lost its own internal compass because of that domestication. So I just like to make that distinction for people because a predator doesn't walk around the world or prance around the world killing all the time. Yeah. It kills what it needs, then it takes it back to its den, it eats with its cubs, it plays, it naps, you know, and then it a lot of the time is just, you know, walking or running around. It's not like 100% of the time with its sympathetic energy on high waiting for its next kill. Yeah. And so when people hear about jaguar energy, they think that I'm teaching women how to like walk around the world getting whatever they want whenever they want it, how they want it. And that's not jaguar energy. That's overcompensated aggressive energy. And it's fine to be aggressive when we need to be aggressive. That's great. And that's what my work is about, helping people restore their self-protective instincts that have been disarmed by social conditioning and what women should say and shouldn't say in an absence of connection to our own visceral power. But it doesn't mean, nor does it look like someone who's walking around the world that thinks that the world is there for them to take however they want, whenever yeah, they want exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The last topic I really want to cover, because we could have like 15 hours of conversation, because I want to pick apart every little thing, but I'll just move on, because I think one big topic I want to close with is, you mentioned Michel O'Donnell, who, by the way, was not an obstetrician. He was a general surgeon. I don't know if you knew that, but... He was trained as a surgeon, but then he did work in obstetrics. Yeah, he was like the guy who had to attend to births and whatnot, being the only surgeon around, which I found very interesting when I met him. And he's actually going to be my 100th episode on the podcast in a couple of weeks. But he sent me his entire collection of books signed. And I went through them in about 14 seconds. And one book that I thought was especially relevant perhaps to what we're talking about. And I think a lot of the work that you do and how you show up in the space, which by the way, from the very, very beginning of the talk, when you were talking about, Hey, like a lot of this stuff's really hard, but we just have to like continue to hold the boat upright. I literally imagined myself in a little rowboat in the ocean and the system or whatever you want to call it, mother culture. And I'm just keeping the boat from tipping over. It kind of feels like that when we speak about some of these things, because while we are philosophizing, I do think it's very relevant. If we want to see some change in the world, I think it's relevant to look at the way that we're bringing babies into the world. So this phenomenon of overly interventive births of like we've been talking about, the bypassing of the process and not going through these rites of passage for men or for women, I think it's a really important point to close on. So in Michel Odon's book, The Functions of the Orgasms, he talks quite a bit about the role of oxytocin, the other endorphins, but you know, really the love hormone being absent 
in the process of conceiving, whether it's through fertility treatments, et cetera, all the way up through the postpartum period where we're giving formula. So culturally speaking, over the past hundred years, we've really started going adrift with regards to the more integrative model of what birth means. What I say all the time is that if we want to change the world, we need to start by let's just get birth right first. And if we can do that, perhaps other changes can happen. But all of this other stuff that we're seeing that's problematic in the world, I do think that through this model of love, what if multiple generations of babies were born without being flooded with love? It does beg to question, what would a world without love look like? And so in concluding, I'd love any sort of insights that came up for you there, but you had also brought up in our sort of pre-recording you know, how might our cultural understanding or how we even show up at birth, how can this be a place where we start to repair whatever the word is, inadequacies or the parts about our culture that we think are doing so much harm? How can we use birth and show up for birth in such a way that it does cause more widestream effects in the culture at large? Well, your what if, I think that's happened. Mm. So we don't have to imagine a time when babies are coming in without being flooded with love and oxytocin. I think one of my last hospital births, that was why it was the last one, because I was at a birth without oxytocin. And I was so disheartened that that was like that function that's so powerful, so original and so primal could be absent. Mm. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't be a part of the roulette that it is to go into the hospital and hope you get a good team and hope you're the doctor that actually knows how to work with the staff in the hospital is on call and hope that the person can remember who they are once they put on the clothes in spite of all of the altars that you build and Mm. all of that. Notarized birth plans, that whole thing is so sad. Our people, you know, it's filled with distortions. And so We are at this point in the culture and I'm continually, you know, there's a part of the reckoning book where I say, which was, I think the hardest line to write and the hardest line for Stephen Jenkinson to read, which is, I thought we were in purgatory and you think we're in hell. And Mm. he's in his late sixties. So he says, well, the world looks different when you have less years left and, you know, you're willing to maybe be a little more emphatic And so, yeah, I mean, what is around us is a product of distorted, interrupted birth for lots of generations. Mm. It's very disheartening when I go to Brazil and, for instance, my husband's mother, so it's just one generation back was born at home and then he was born in the hospital. And in Brazil, medical training, a lot of it doesn't even include physiological birth. So when you go to the hospital, like I was a medical advocate and a doula there, there would be lots of people in the room because they never saw a non-medicated birth. So they were just like, I want in on this. I want to see, like, is this possible? Because they're trained as surgeons, as cesarean. I mean, and the cesareans they do are remarkably good because they're so practiced at it. so (laughs) many. Yeah. But here, it's my great great-grandparents who were born at home. Already my great-grandparents were born in hospitals and then it was twilight birth. And so, you know, it's been a lot of years now of medicated surgical delivery for most people. Yeah. And yet people continue to be born. And thankfully, you know, thankfully children are still coming and we do have choices and we can 
decide how we want to interact with all of the different structures and systems that are in place. Maybe not everybody has that choice, but I'm talking about the people who are listening to this podcast and related to it because people who don't have that choice normally aren't listening to podcasts about this kind of thing. And so I just would like people to exit the amnesia and exit the magical thinking and the fantasy that somehow the system is not as bad as it seems or not as dysfunctional as we might be making it out to be that somehow because they like their doctor, their doctor's nice or their doctor's related to someone they know or someone they know said this, that the biggest indices for birth outcome is the place itself. So you need to look at hospital statistics, not doctor statistics. Yeah, And also as the care providers, I think choose... It's okay to choose based on your own nervous system. Yeah. I think there's a lot of information out there that's like, well, it's up to us to make the wishes of our clients happen. And if our clients want this, then we just, you know, need to sort of like mildly advocate for that. But our systems also matter because the birth keepers are also the way showers. So we also, it's okay for us to choose based on what we can do with our own nervous systems. It's okay for us to say, here's a list of practitioners that I work with. We don't have to badmouth other practitioners, but we can also say, you know, yeah, I won't be able to be there in this circumstance. And that should say something to somebody who respects you or respects their worth. Certainly there's going to choose people that just choose someone who agrees with them because we've all had the experience of talking to someone and they're saying they want something, but everything else that they're doing is telling you they want something else. Yeah. Yeah. So we Hmm. need to strengthen our own nervous systems so that we know how to skillfully weave with those situations and not feel like I told you, like I was feeling like an accomplice to a fantasy. I was feeling like, because the narrative in the birth world as well, it probably went a little better because you were there. But for me, it was like, is that little bit of better worth it for the amount of hits my system took Mm -hmm. to be in that environment? And I'm not convinced that that incremental better makes enough difference generationally to do the kind of repair that I'm suggesting that's necessary, which is why I'm investing my energy in the like my daughter's generation and their sexual health and their gynecological health and their own sense of how this works and what quote unquote normal is. But it's that's heartbreaking too. I do find that they have a better sense of their anatomy and maybe what their quote unquote rights are, even though they don't have a lot of practice exercising them. And that divide can be really challenging because it's like, what you know you deserve, but what you're actually physically embodying that you deserve or that you're up for are different. I've noticed that a lot with them. But also I'm just concerned with the level of SSRIs and medications that most of the teenage girls are on. And so any kind of intervention normally leads to a predisposition for other interventions and inventions probably. (laughs) So I'm also really in this place of what is what is upstream and what is the most efficient place of intersecting this like enormous torrent of water that's pulling in one direction towards we are not adaptive and therefore we need medication and we need all of these things because in this purgatory, we actually can't survive in the existing culture. At what point do we have this alternative route? And that is the tension that I think is causing a lot of the anxiety to begin with. 
honestly, because I think that all of our systems underneath it are relating to the complete absence of actual survival skills that are present. Like in my case, one of the reasons I went to hunt, because I'm like, dude, I talk about hunting. I'm from the suburbs. I wrote a book about predator energy, but like, okay, let's actually do this thing instead (laughs) of just imagine what it's like. And we have a lot of imagination and a lot of rhetoric and a lot of ideology without a lot of actual experience. So I think it has everything to do with developing manual skills. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I wonder what it would be like for somebody who, I think many women and men, I think our nervous systems know that there's something that we need to experience, right? That's this calling, you know, whatever you want to call it. We get this sense that like, oh, like I have this primal urge to do whatever it is, you know? Birth is one of those experiences. I think that having sex is one of those experiences. And killing animals or hunting, you know, procuring calories, there's a primal urge there. We've made it easier. You know, in the birth world, we've made that easier through C-sections and epidurals and all of that. And that's not a problem if people choose to do that. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying here. Similar with hunting, you have this urge to go out and like, there's something in me. In fact, Mansell, the guy who I was telling you that leads these groups, he even says he has like this predatorial thing inside of him. That's how he describes it. I wonder what that experience of hunting would provide to somebody who feels this primal urge and how that would actually ripple down through even the birth experience where you've connected with this primal thing. And now you're about to let the lioness out. When the neocortex shuts down, those catecholamines are kind of fizzling and that ejection reflex happens and you get this surge of adrenaline and noradrenaline and pow, your baby's here. That's something we don't practice often. That's why it's so scary. But you experienced that on the hunt, I'm sure, where you're at the whole time you're waiting. And I actually did, by the way, get a shot. I missed three times at a deer 100 yards, 115 yards from me, stood there and let me take three shots. And I went over the top and I could feel it trembling through me. But that was actually the medicine that I needed was to miss and then to go home hungry. These little things, we've become civilized to death. I think there's a book by that name, so I I hate to steal the name. But anyways, we could ramble all day. I know you've got a client, Kimberly. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I'm sure we could record seven more hours of podcasts today, but I want you to get back to your life. Tell us a little bit about this beauty and how people can find you. So you just held up the Reckoning book. So that's the book that I co-wrote with Stephen Jenkinson. I can't really sum it up, but it's a dialogue (laughs) book and... I'm bringing my genuine heartbreak and wonderings about how to navigate these times to someone who's been thinking about it for longer than I have. So he described it as a not so old, older man with a not so young, younger woman (laughs) meeting one another about grief and heartbreak and parenting and elderhood in a me first era. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful and we're book. on the road together a little bit, which is fun. So we're coming to Asheville, North Carolina, Portland, Oregon, Sebastopol, Berkeley. We're probably going to teach at the Rose Center next year together. So that's that book. And you can get that at orphanwisdom.com slash reckoning because it's not, we self-published and you can't get it on Amazon or anything. And there's a audiobook too, if people prefer that. And then my website's my name, KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. I'm on Instagram a lot, but also intermittently trying to reckon with these questions that we've been talking yeah. about is like, what is actually helpful and to what degree do I participate in the master's tools when I'm trying to dismantle the master's house and 
And is there a way to use it effectively? So I go intermittently with that, but that's probably the social media platform I'm on the most. Excellent. Thank you. We'll send people your way, Kimberly. Thank you again for giving me so much of your time. I'm very grateful. You're very gracious. And I hope to see you soon and see you in person eventually. Thanks so much, Nathan. Recording stopped. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't checked out my website, go to BelovedHolistics.com. Nothing on the show is medical advice, but you certainly can get some help, whether you're a person looking for a birth worker or a holistic gynecologist, or if you're a midwife or other type of birth worker or healthcare professional that wants to have me in your corner. You can find all of that there. You can also find information about my new PRP fertility program. That's all available at BelovedHolistics.com. If anything in this show touched you in some way, if you went back and re-listened to something, share this episode. Give the gift of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast to the people in your life, to your clients, to your family, your friends, your colleagues. Let's get these messages out there. This conversation, like every conversation, I only do it because I think it's important for the community. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give me a five-star review. Believe it or not, it really matters. And then lastly, support our sponsors. The sponsors make it possible to put out this high-quality content. And as I'm increasing my audio and my video and my different platforms and rebranding and rebuilding, that costs money. My sponsors enable that to happen. I also have an online shop with not only the sponsors discount codes listed, but a wide variety of other products that are going to make you and your family as healthy and vital as possible. Again, I'm Nathan Riley. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic Obituary podcast. We'll see you next week.